Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> oh, I've tried to record this intro a bunch of times and I'm failing miserably and I'm not sure why it is, whether I'm just in that silly season mindset or, uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I should probably just stop complaining and get on with what I've got to say, right? Okay, so... I am going to have a few weeks off, which I normally do at Christmas, but I normally just don't publish episodes and don't say anything because I don't want to upset anyone. <laughs> and I just think, oh, no one will notice if I'm gone. But this year, instead, I am going to share some of my favorite episodes from podcasts of the guests that have been on my show in the last however many years. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm making this more convoluted. Basically, I've asked previous guests who have been on the show if I can share one of my favorite episodes of theirs to my listeners uh, so that there's something in your podcast feed over the next few weeks. And luckily, they've said yes. So the first show that I'm sharing is This Queer Book Saved My Life, which pretty much does what it says on the tin. So it's an interview style show where the guest talks about a queer book that they discovered at some point in their life that had a significant impact on them. And occasionally they get the author of that book to come on and have a bit of a conversation with that person, which that would freak me out a bit, I think, if I was the guest who was meeting the author because you know you should never meet your heroes. Anyway, that's not the point. I'm going on a weird tangent. Now, the show is hosted by J.P. Derbogosian, who was on the show way back in August 2022 in the episode entitled Every Bachelorette Party Seems to Be at a Queer Bar Now. Ah, so true. Anyway, I wanted to share this episode because, firstly... JP is a total sweetheart, and I think you'll love his style of interview. And secondly, all this book banning crap that's going on at the moment has really got me to think about my own experiences and appreciate how I lived in this kind of strange, privileged pocket of time where parents didn't really seem to give a shit about what books I could access. And so I was able to read tons and tons of books that gave me really different perspectives on the queer experience and self-loathing. <laughs> I don't know why my mind went there the first. Well, yeah, if you know me, you know why my mind went there. And processing your feelings and figuring out who you are and just having that opportunity to see yourself reflected. But that is enough about me and my experience. Why don't we find out from someone else about their experience? As I said, I think you will love this episode. It's a conversation between JP and the Poet Laureate of Portland, Maine, Maya Williams. And they talk about The Color Purple and why that book was so important to Maya's queer awakening. Hey everyone, on today's episode, we're talking about one of the most banned books in America, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Since 1984, 
This book has faced challenges across the country as parents kept trying to ban it from schools, and nearly all of those attempts were overturned. But as so-called parents' rights groups across the country once again try to ban it, we have a very special episode for you that dives into the profound impact the color purple can have for a young person, and that also this episode, through a gift of timing, coincides with the December release of the film adaptation of the musical The Color Purple. My name is J.P. Derbogosian, and welcome to This Queer Book, Save My Life. I want to write a poem to every black and brown femme with earbuds in their ears. Slowly strolling or quickly pacing on Congress Street every morning to catch a bus, catch an appointment, catch someone who had the nerve to try them. I want to write a poem to every black and brown femme with earbuds in their ears. Hands in pockets for warmth, only making eye contact with fellow black and brown people before their separate turns at their respective intersections. I want to write a poem to every black and brown femme with earbuds in their ears, listening to songs or podcasts they feel they can never play at home or work, or they do play them at both places and need repetition in their steps downtown. I want to write a poem to every black and brown femme with earbuds in their ears, turning the volume up to block out the pro-lifers, the catcallers, the dead namers slash misgenderers, the well-meaning white strifers. I want to write a poem to every black and brown femme with earbuds in their ears because all day in our shoes is a struggle for us. All day trying to stay alive is a struggle for us. And we still wake up to walk up and down or run up and down Congress Street anyway. You were listening to a recording of Kennedy Center Arts Across America, Maya Williams' Definitions of Home. And Maya, who is the seventh poet laureate for Portland, Maine, is our guest today. My name is Maya Williams. I use am, they, them, and she, her pronouns. I'm a poet based in Portland, Maine. Maya just published their second poetry collection, Refused a Second Date. And her first collection, Judas and Suicide, came out earlier this year. Maya was nominated by the community to serve as Poet Laureate in Portland, Maine, and now A gets to work in the community in that role. Every Poet Laureate program in the U.S. is different. I just know that for for mine in my city, I get to work with the Portland Public Library and get to facilitate community-related programs that are, that are literary-focused, that are poetry-focused. And the book that saved Maya's life is The Color Purple by Alice Walker. I would describe it as an epistolary novel. Epistolary is like a fancy word for like this. uh, The main character writes letters. And in this particular book, she particularly writes letters to God and writes letters to her sister. Um, She and her sister get separated at some at some point early in their lives due to the central character having to be forced to forced to marry someone and the person she married to is like you can't have a relationship with your sister because i can't have her as i mentioned at the start of this episode the color purple is one of the most banned books in the u.s especially in schools and yet however maya got to come to this book in the eighth grade 
at James Martin Middle School in Charlotte, North Carolina, the color purple was on the list of an array of books to choose from, and I had to do like a monthly book project, and there was one of the months where I chose the color purple. And the color purple is a book that Maya kept returning to throughout her life. But as people keep trying to ban it, I wanted to start my conversation with Maya around its impact on them in the eighth grade so that we can see why we need books and the color purple, especially in our schools. So part one of our story, holding space for all the parts of ourselves. Here's my conversation with Maya, starting with the color purple's queer storyline. So it's Seely meets Shug Avery. Shug Avery is uh, is Seely's husband's lover. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and and through loving each other, Seely is able to obtain her own healing, especially when it comes to losing her sister and navigating a less tyrannical relationship with God and seeking a relationship with God that actually affirms her livelihood affirms her sexuality affirms how beautiful life can be even amidst all of the all of the trauma that she's faced particularly with domestic violence and sexual violence i'm gonna say the word particularly a lot in this conversation <laughs> are you a fan of the word particularly or <laughs> apparently i'm just my, my brain is just no, noticing how i'm using it a lot and i'm like yeah we're going with it and in the in the eighth grade, like, the queer love story went over my head. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because even the book calls that out, too, about how folks witness uh, Celia and Shug's love and, and they interpret it as like, oh, you know, women need company. It's important for women not to feel alone. <laughs> and my eighth grade brain was like, oh, my God, there's such great friends who kiss on the mouth. Oh, no. That's great. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> how are you at at that time at that age how are you identifying like did you have a sense of yourself as being queer or or not yeah i did not have a sense of myself being queer and it was so it was a so looking back on it it's so important to me to read a book like this because it's a queer awakening whether i like it or not yeah and like as i continue to get older and i reread the book and and also re- recognize that it is indeed a queer book and indeed a queer love story is a, is in this book it only continues to affirm what i continue to navigate and also centering Centering queer people who also align with religion, that is also very important to me um, as a non-binary religious person, especially because of how of how Celie writes to God as a way for her to be as upfront with God as possible. I, I use the word blame, but I promise this for a positive reason. I blame this book for my own for my own spiritual practice of like writing to God. Why do you think that I mean again, this will be for folks who haven't read it. Why does Seely write to God? Like she could have addressed the letters yeah. to an ancestor. Yeah. Um, she could have addressed the letters to a contemporary. Why do you think she wrote them to God? Like she does write to her sister at some at some point, um, especially when when she has somewhat of a crisis of faith in the book. But for the majority of the book, including the ending of the book, she writes to God. 
And it's because she's lonely. And because mm-hmm. all she knows how to do is having to struggle to survive living in the body that she's living in, uh, living as someone who was forced to marry someone who was generally unhappy and used his own hurt and his own grief to put that on her and to put that on his children. And she is, and she had been suffering ever since her childhood. And God is the only, is the only entity that she can communicate with as she's navigating those struggles. And he, and also even as she's navigating Joyce too, upon meeting Suge, upon finally having an opportunity to hear that her sister is alive and the and the other relationships she gets to build with people throughout the book. Absolutely. So how would you describe the life-saving features that the color purple had for you? Mm-hmm. It was life-saving because it's nice to see black people alive and well even as they've had to navigate particular instances of generational trauma and Alice Walker writing how like, yes, this is possible. It is possible for families to heal. It is possible for forgiveness to be present after domestic violence and sexual violence. It is possible to be alive and well and joyful after experiencing so much hurt as a, yeah. And also as a suicide survivor, it's like being, being alive is really hard. And, Mm -hmm. and like, and I say that phrase a lot because it's true. It is so true. And it's so wonderful how literature like this can encourage me to stay alive and stay alive for myself, even after the amount of trauma that I have faced and, and honestly continue to face. And, yeah. mm-hmm. In eighth grade, how is that informing your own spiritual practice? Yeah, like uh, having the opportunity to see like, oh, you can do that. You can write, you can write to God. That's chill. That's cool. Uh, even though there, there, there are scriptures in the Bible that talk about, that talk about people write, writing their prayers down too. Um, but that was, but reading the color purple was my first moment of going like, oh, that makes sense. I love this. I love this. Oh, I also love this because you're reading in eighth grade at a time when so many eighth graders today won't have access to it because it's being banned in so many schools yeah. across the country. So mm-hmm. I I hope that when folks are listening to this, they'll see why eighth graders and seventh graders and, you know, on up should have access to this book and should be reading it. So that after eighth grade, the next time you engaged with it was through the film. Mm-hmm. Watching the film. What did you think of the film? Oh, it's so good. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. It's like... I am very, I am intrigued by, yeah, Steve, Steven Spielberg is not a black director, mm-hmm. but like this film is considered a black film because of all of the rich black characters in this film and the performances by, uh, by Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey are absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. And again, even like, even when watching the film too, it's like some of the queerness, I'm like, okay, I somewhat get it. But also at the same time, I'm, I'm like, they friends question mark like (laughs) yeah yeah there was some controversy about that right about having to code it Mm -hmm. and and quote-unquote tone it down yeah because and like my and like my family loves this film but like uh they don't acknowledge the queer 
plot line of it and like and even with this new adaptation coming out that's centered on the musical aspect of it like yeah no one's acknowledging the queer aspect of it even though it's it's right there so when you came back to the book then was that how what was that experience like then in terms of the the queer themes and the queer storylines I got to actually fully immerse myself in in the book when getting to reread it upon moving to Maine. I've lived in Maine for six years now. Uh, moving to Maine uh, helped me in the process of, of coming out as queer and non-binary um, and having the opportunity to, to read that book again. It it felt good to to read text about like this this is an opportunity for you to feel good in your body and and God wants us to feel good in our bodies because God created our bodies and it's gonna be really important for your healing to feel good in a body that was created for you and yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about representation, right? So how is the color purple fitting into the books and the poetry and the media that you were consuming at the time? Like, was it a alone by itself where you see reading this and seeing yourself represented? Or was it part of a variety of different um, other books and poetry that you were you were seeing yourself represented in? It was nice. I know that at the time when I, uh, again, when I first moved to Maine and this book came back into my life, like reading books by black comedians and black poets was also helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, reading poems by Zandria Phillips, uh, who's a, uh, who's a non-binary, uh, black poet. It was also important for me to like read content about religious groups and, uh, and black religious groups and black missionary groups that wasn't just about criticizing those groups and also recognizing how it's like, wow, this is one of the first books that is, that is like shown a positive representation of missionary groups because this is a black missionary group that Celie's sister ended up, ended up mm-hmm. being a part of. And that's not, that's not me advocating for missionary groups. That's not me saying that missionary groups are perfect by any means, but having that insight around, yeah, these are like the black, Christians I grew up with and these are examples of how they played a positive influence in in my life and I get to see that red in the in the color purple too and seeing how Celie's sister is so culturally not knowledgeable like she is so she's so faithful to God but also like is not there to try to take away the religious traditions of the of the tribal community that she that she's with on the African continent Mm -hmm. and for you how are you navigating that conflict that is between you know queerness and and your faith tradition right they're all often put in in opposition to each other and yet here's the mm-hmm. color purple that's navigating both of them in a in a much different way so how is that helping you navigating the conflict in your own life yeah, that's that's a that's a really good question. Like it like the conflict has to be navigated because I can't separate it. Mm-hmm. This this I, this idea that we can that we can set separate between the two and it, and it's not just conservative re- religious folks who believe that could be separated. There are folks regardless of of worldview and and things of that nature who believe that they can be separated and they can, and they can't. Uh both are pertinent parts of who I am, what I believe in and how I identify are pertinent parts of who I am and getting to read about Celie and how she holds so many parts of herself while trying to maintain a relationship with God, even when that relationship falters in the in the midst of her grief around 
how long her husband had kept her from her sister. Like it's it's really important how much space is held for that and mm-hmm. and and also the way how Alice Walker writes about spirit spirituality as a whole is a, is always something I admire about her work too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the title of the podcast is This Queer Book Saved My Life. And so you were just talking about like how literature can be life affirming or life saving. And so from your uh, lived experience, could you maybe share more about that with our audience about how that literature can be life affirming and life saving for folks? I know that for me, reading and uh, writing poetry has provided me a sense of release and literature can be that place of release. I find it fascinating how often literature is described as escape, and sometimes it can be. But when it comes to instances like the color purple that's making you face the struggles each of these characters go through, it's like, it's not an escape for me. It's something that helps me reckon with why humanity is so hard and reckon Mm -hmm. with why communication can be hard and reckon with why it's important to advocate for yourself in a world that won't let you or when you're surrounded by people who are influenced by that same world that doesn't want good communication to happen that doesn't want healing to happen Part two of our story in less than 60 seconds. First, I want to share that we have a holiday sale happening now through our bookstore, powered by bookshop.org. A number of select titles are 15% off, including Justin Torres's brilliant new Blackouts, which won the National Book Award this year. Also on sale is Roxane Gay's new collection, Opinions. Follow the links in our show notes on our website or go to bookshop.org slash shop slash thisqueerbook. When you're there, go to the section marked Books for the Holidays and use promo code HOLIDAY23 when you buy any of these books. Also, I am hosting a new show. It is called The Gailey Show. It airs on AM 950 in Minneapolis every Saturday in the 2 p.m. hour alongside episodes of This Queer Book Saved My Life. We celebrate LGBTQ culture and entertainment in Minnesota and beyond. This week, I'll be talking with New York Times Modern Love contributor Suzette Mullen about her upcoming book, The Only Way Through, is out. I'll chat with Minnesota author Gary Eldon Peter about his novel, The Complicated Calculus and Cows of Carl Paulson. Tune in live at 2 p.m. or use the Tune In app. It's in video, so you can stream it on AM950's YouTube channel or Facebook page. And of course, it is available wherever you stream your podcast. Just search for The Gailey Show. And now, part two of our story, Writing It All Out. I don't know if I'm a writer per se. For sure, I would say I'm an essayist and that I've published a few essays over the past year. I think I make that distinction in my head between writer and essayist because the word essay is from the French, essayer, which means to attempt, to try, to test. And that's what I think I've been doing is to try to attempt to understand this weird and messy and frustrating and hilarious and wild queer life that we're all living. It's why I also can't help asking writers who come on this show about their craft, 
How do these books we talk about on this podcast change how we talk to others in the world? Even if I wasn't an essayist, I still would have to talk to other people and I still have to tell them who I am. But who am I? As an essayist, I feel like I'm having one long continuous existential crisis. How do I tell the world who I am? It's why Michael Cunningham's A Home at the End of the World and Alan Downs's The Velvet Rage and Nancy Agabian's Me as Her Again were so life-saving to me. I suddenly saw myself in these books, but also there was language to talk about what I actually wanted in my life. Suddenly there were words to name the, up to that point, unnamed rage I was feeling. And suddenly I had a model for how I could be in an Armenian space and be my queer self and not want or have to shrink away and disappear. So to that end, knowing I was going to be in conversation with a veritable poet laureate, I wanted to ask Maya what role the color purple had in her own coming out story, and then how did that translate to writing Ear's own poetry? It's so fascinating because there there are some times where where I think about like oh like oh I think I think my queer awakening was like watching Black Swan when I was a teenager but didn't <laughs> articulate it until like years later or whatever. Um, but no, looking looking back on it, like the color purple is is a part of my coming out story because is the first form of black queer religious representation for me that is the first thing that played that played a role in how i want to engage in my creative work and how i want to engage spiritually and how i want to engage with other people and and also like this book is a reminder of how of how much i love people and and also and and queer people are are really good at loving people is there a particular chapter or passage from the book that you can recall that really illustrates that for you? Hold up. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, God, God loves all them feelings. That's some of the best stuff God did. And when you know God loves them, you enjoy them a lot more. You can just relax, go with everything that's going. Praise God by liking what you did. God don't think it's dirty, I ask. Nah, she say. God made it. Listen. God love everything you love, and a mess of stuff you don't. But more than anything else, God love admiration. You saying God vain, I ask? Nah, she say, not vain, just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. What'd it do when it pissed off, I asked? Oh, it makes something else. People think pleasing God is all God care about, but any fool living in the world can see it always trying to please us back. Mm. Where's that passage from in part of the book? Like, yeah. put that in context for yeah, us. Yeah, this passage is from is from the first letter Celie writes to her sister Nettie, uh, where she says, "I don't, I don't write to God no more. I write to you." And and Shug is like, "What happened to God?" And C and Celie's like, "Who?" And Shug is like, "That's not, that's not funny." And they start talking more about spirituality. And yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So, how did the color purple influence your own writing as a poet? 
It influenced my own writing as a poet uh, because of the way I like to make sure I write my prayers down. It influenced my writing as a poet to to take better close attention to color and pay better close attention to surroundings. Um, and I and I have anxiety, so sometimes like um, there have been instances in writing workshops where the instructor is like, like there needs to be more senses, right, about the senses. And I'm like, my senses are numb. <laughs> uh, and, and like, and having, and, and having the color purple be a, be a space where it's like, here's this person with so much trauma in their body, still being able to, to witness so much of the world and get, and get those, and get those senses slowly back. Like, yeah. And it influences, influences my writing so, so much. Um, and like, yeah, yeah, this book, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, I, I praise the poet Anis Mojgani a lot. Uh, he's a black Iranian poet who's the, who's the poet, poet laureate of the entire state of Oregon. Like in the way he writes about color and people, like makes me think of Alice Walker writing about color and people. Like when you say that about writing workshops, it is weird to navigate them if you're navigating them with any type of I feel like they're very ableist writing workshops mm -hmm. you know particularly for invisible um, disabilities in particular like if you're coming in there I see I love particular too yes <laughs> <laughs> we out here <laughs> particular <laughs> we are precise with our words <laughs> uh, but I think that I think they can be very ableist when folks are coming in there with anxiety, with trauma, with um, depression or other types of behavioral health diagnoses that you as a writer are trying to get through, right? Whether you're doing that therapeutically as a writer or you're doing it like I am uh, not using it as therapy, I am using this as a, you know, this needs to be written and put out into the world, but how you, the workshop how those writing workshops can be triggering, right? And I think we kind of maybe use triggering. I think it's kind of starting to get a little cheapened, and I and I hate that um, because it's such a valuable concept, you know. And I think some people are like, you know, trying to use their privilege to use like to co-opt the word trigger and then use it for their own justifying their own privilege, but. It, it can be very difficult, I think, when you're when you're in a writing workshop on top of already having to. And I don't know. I, I don't want to speak to your experiences. I've found that in there I have to do a lot of explaining of what queerness is right about, like how sexuality is or, you know, can show itself or the themes of it or gender identity or being, you know, Armenian. And I'm like, oh, sometimes I'm like, I'm not here to teach this stupid thing. I'm here, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to get feedback about my writing. And you can be in these workshops and trying to navigate all of that can be really challenging and this is becoming a monologue on my part but I, where I'm going yeah. with that is to ask you like what is your experience of of navigating that and maybe some advice you would have to other writers yeah. navigating this as well I was listening to uh, the verses pot podcast um, uh, and it's a podcast through the Poetry Foundation Brittany Rogers and Ajane Dawkins co-host it and they're interviewing a poet and I love the way that this particular poet had said like the thing about workshops is 
I'm I'm not asking you about my content about blackness. I ask you, are these commas placed correctly? Are is the is the sejura showing up in the form? That's what I'm asking. Right? Don't don't tell me yes. about the content <laughs> about my identity. And and yeah, like and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And typically when I'm when I'm in workshop, uh, I've like I like to make sure I'm accustomed to listening to my body when listening to feedback. Like if someone gives me feedback and my body is like there gets very tight um, and feels and feels un- and feels uneasy. It's it's like this feedback's not for me. Uh, but if I'm hearing feedback around like, oh, have you tried this? Would you consider shifting this or like good questions to like help me expand on the poem or help me take away things where it's like where it's like i don't need this extra stuff because like the title's doing the work for me for example um and my, and my body's like ooh excited or it's like calm it's it's like okay so this is this is a sign that this is good feedback um and granted there there have been feedback where i've been uncomfortable in my body but there's a difference between d- discomfort because of a challenge that i that i need to accept versus discomfort because I'm being asked invasive questions about my mental illness, my gender identity, my um, my sexual orientation, my race. Whenever I'm facilitating work- workshops um, or I'm working with anyone one one on one, I tend to I tend to say like like it's really important work that you're doing writing about this and at the same time if you're if you're hurting yourself by writing this, you don't have to write this right now. I think that's really important advice we did a episode a few back and um actually no it was our like ever premiere episode ever it was with carmen maria machado talking about her memoir (laughs) and how she talked about like she would not do it again and she said it was such a difficult process Mm -hmm. she said that I had to get it out of me because I couldn't do the other work that I wanted to do until I got it out. But she said it was it was a traumatic process. It was traumatic doing the readings afterwards because constantly having to, you know, relive this. And she said, and then everybody wanted to send me trauma books, you know, that were like similar in the same theme. And, she, and finally, she said to folks, please don't send these to me anymore. I, I can't continue reading about this. Like, this is where I'm moving now in my work. And this is what, you know, the themes that I want to engage in. And it is interesting to me to hear, and I'll put the question to you about how have you found that difference between writing for your own healing and writing to get something out into the world? Mm-hmm. Because that publishing process can be. right is is that distinction making sense it does make sense and like there are i've in more recent years i've been hearing writers particularly poets say the phrase right from the scar not the wound and like and that has been helpful as far as like we need to make sure we have, we have processed through this as much as we can before this touches paper. And and granted, like there are some folks who might say like, well, what? But yeah, like you need to get get some get something out. Then gets then get something out. And and it's and it's like okay, if you if you get it out, don't publish it right away. Uh, let it breathe for a minute and come back to it if you don't want to write after processing for a minute. And like. 
uh, pu- publishing is so is so complicated. So so I'm over here like, do your research about the publishers you want to work with. Are there writers that you like? Have you heard them talk about great experiences or not so great experiences while working with this publisher? Um, ask them questions about like, did they feel rushed in their editing? process uh where did they ask good questions did they ask invasive questions in the editing process ah (laughs) it's a lot it's a lot to have to think about and doing that research the movie that's upcoming here have you seen the musical you said earlier that you have seen the musical right i've I've listened to the musical soundtrack so i have not seen the full length stage production of the of the musical so so I'm grateful that this movie will, will come out because it'll be a way for me to see it. Uh, but yeah, I've heard I've heard it full length and it is beautiful. For folks who haven't seen the musical or listened to the album, how would you describe it to them? I would describe it as as a as like an arrange as a, as an arrangement of gospel music, southern music, bluesy music. When we get to hear from the letters from Nettie Seely's sister, uh, they they're able to add add music that's traditional to the to the continent of Africa. It is a black musical, and it is an enjoyable musical filled with black music. And uh, my favorite songs from the musical are when uh, and the, uh, most most of them are Shug Avery songs. Uh, too uh, too beautiful for words, which is which is a beautiful song she she sings. To Seely, um, that made like I remember crying upon first hearing it. I'm like, <laughs> like it's like, oh, what's someone to say that to me, like sort of thing. And um, and there is a song called "Push the Button" because it's a reference to the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, in regards to Shug's conversations with uh with Seely about sex, but in the in the musical they make it framed as as Shug singing at a juke joint, advising men to like. <laughs> how to please someone during sex and yes yeah, Seely's C- song toward the end I'm here it's a grand- grandstanding one it's very empowering are the lyrics pulled from the book yeah oh I didn't know mm-hmm. that okay I haven't seen the musical and I haven't heard the album so I'm really looking forward to the film as an opportunity to hear and see both uh, this um, this December this has been such a great conversation. Oh, I don't want um, it to end. Maya, I know. I'm curious about, you know, are there things that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share about the book? Ooh. Oh, my gosh. There there was a... Because I remember reading the article that, that had come out right after the book was, was released. I know I wasn't alive then, uh, but there's, there's re- record of this article that exists and about how so many black men were upset at the portrayal of black men in this book. And I find that so fascinating because on one end, it's like, well, of course you're upset. It's holding up a mirror. And at the same time, it's like, these men are healing in this book. And these men become so loving of the people around them of the women around them there is healing here and you don't want to focus on that you're just so hell-bent on the fact that there is critique happening even though there's so much nuance happening that's able to talk about everyone in as much of a nuanced light as possible and still have a happy ending it's like what are you complaining for? Like, like Celie and her husband, like she's able to forgive her husband because of how much work, internal work her, uh, her husband is able to do. He's like, I should not have hurt you. And I was only hurting you 
because you weren't Shug and I was only hurting you because of my own crap from my dad telling me the type of man I should be. And I'm sorry, you did not deserve that. And how it's like, that healing is possible and you're mad? You're <laughs> mad? <laughs> like, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it weird how that can happen? Where you think that, yeah... The reaction that you think is going to happen is like the complete opposite. It, it kind of blows my mind when stuff like that happens. Mm -hmm. Is there a poem that you have written that was directly inspired by The Color Purple? So my collection, Refuse to Second Date, talks a lot about queerness and uh, intergenerational patterns of dating. Um, and a generational patterns of domestic violence, uh, ra racism and dating. So even though there aren't any direct poems that like pull quotes from Alice Walker or anything like that, it makes me happy that like I have a book about black queerness and intergenerational healing that could be added to this lineage. And I'm very grateful that Alice Walker started it out for us. We're out here. It's amazing. Maya recently directed White with Josh Shu at Mad Horse Theatre Company. Her new book, Refused a Second Date, is out now. If you go to their website, mayawilliamspoet.com, you can see upcoming events and readings. It looks like Maya will be at Slamlandia in Portland, Oregon on December 21st, and at Quiet City Books in Lewiston, Maine on January 26th of next year. There are also a number of videos on Maya's website where you can see and performing Ears Poetry. And good news, Maya has a third manuscript of poetry that she is working on getting published right now, and they will be on an upcoming residency finalizing it. Stay tuned to her website for updates, or follow Maya on Twitter or Instagram. Their handle is at E-M-M-D-U-B-B-16. Links in the show notes and on our website. That's our show for today. Our podcast is executive produced by Jim Pounds, accounting and creative support provided by Gordy Erickson. Our associate producers are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Jonathan Freed, Paul Caver, Nicole O'Lilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. Our Patreon subscribers are Stephen D., Stephen Flam, Thomas Mickna, and Gary Nygaard. A reminder to listen to The Gailey Show, Listen live every Saturday at 2 p.m. on AM 950 or through the TuneIn app. You can also find it everywhere you stream your podcast or watch my pretty face on AM 950's YouTube channel or Facebook page. Permission to use audio from the Kennedy Center Arts Across America, Maya Williams Definitions of Home, provided by Maya Williams. Our soundtrack and sound effects are provided through royalty-free licenses. Please visit thisqueerbook.com slash music for track names and artists. We're on social media, of course. You can find us on Facebook and Blue Sky or Instagram. As always, you can connect with us through our website, thisgripbook.com. And if you want to be on the show, fill out the form on the homepage. And until our next episode, happy holidays, you queers and allies. See you in the bookstores. <laughs>